Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back to my podcast. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Russ Roberts, an economist who has an all-too-rare ability to explain really complicated issues in uncomplicated language that's easy to understand. He's a research fellow at Hoover Institution, a host of a very popular podcast, Econ Talk, which you've probably heard of, and he's the author of many books, including a few novels. But today, Russ and I are going to talk about his most recent book, which is called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. That's right. Russ wrote a book about a Scot who was alive several hundred years ago, and he's going to tell us how a great scholar can change your life. Welcome. Great to be with you, Juliet. Before we start, I want to ask you, What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, I I don't know if I know the answer to that question. Uh, Well, I know I don't know the answer, but uh, I will give you some very cheap advice and you can can chew on it, think about it. I think there are a couple things I'm going to cheat and and offer you two pieces of advice. Um, (laughs) The first is don't be afraid to fail. A lot of people, I think, just assume that once you've messed up, it's over. You can't get back on your feet. You can't recover. And the great thing about, I think, the modern world is to a large extent, you can get back on your feet and you can recover. And uh, don't be afraid to fail. Take some chances. And my other piece of advice is related to it, which is I, I meet a lot of young people who think they have to have a plan. And then they have to execute the plan. I've got to do get really good grades. So I go to law school, become a lawyer, make a lot of money, take care of my family, whatever. And, you know, it's okay to not do exactly what you think you're supposed to do. Uh, you may not like law school. You may not like being a lawyer. I know a lot of unhappy lawyers. I know some happy ones too. But I think people get a lot of comfort from knowing the plan. And I think there's a value to seeing life as a little more of an adventure where you find out what you like and don't like along the way. Uh, That's true about going to college, what you major in in college, what you do when you first job out of college. Um, And I'm going to throw out one more other piece of advice, which is don't take the job that is your first job out of college or grad school. Don't take the job that necessarily uh, don't necessarily take the job that pays the most money. It's okay to take the one that pays the most money, but try to take the one that where you're going to learn the most. That's going to be to make your life more interesting. That's going to make your career more interesting. And I think uh, in today's world, people feel like there's a lot of pressure and um, chill out. That's my advice. I think that's really good advice. I mean, especially like now, at least for people like my age specifically, we're all like about to apply to college and have already started and we're all like so stressed out. So I think kind of 
a reminder that it's not the end of the world, that like one decision is not going to set you on a trajectory that like you have to do exactly what you think you're going to do now. I think that's really important to remember. The other related piece of advice to that is that you're afraid, oh, if I don't get into such and such a college, my whole life's ruined. And that's usually not true. And it's usually the data that people use to look at that. Well, people go to this college, make so much more money than people. Yeah, well, doesn't mean you're going to be like them. And you don't know how much of the gains from going to college or to that particular college are due to who goes there rather than the college itself. So what Mm -hmm. it means for you is really uh, unclear. I think there's a lot of pressure from parents, which I think is kind of tragic to get into the most prestigious, fanciest college. And there's nothing wrong with going to a less prestigious, less fancy college or going to community college for a year and save some money. And if you can handle living from home, especially today with the pandemic going. So I just think there's a huge amount of stress on high school juniors and seniors to maximize their SAT score and get into the best school that they can get into as if their life will be ruined if they don't get into that particular school. And it's really not true. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I remember I used to kind of be like that. And then this pandemic hit, I was like, well, it's actually just that I want to like learn instead of maximizing my potential future output as a worker or a college student. I just was like, I want to have as much information available to me as I can find. But there are other ways to do that. So yeah, and here learning, I am. Learning's a really good idea. Um, I, I've remarked on this at Econ Talk many times that I have a son who's majoring in philosophy and people say, well, what's that good for? And I say, thinking, you know, thinking seems to me like a good skill to have. So I just think People are also worried that if they don't study, say, business or engineering, their life will be unsuccessful because they don't have a natural place to find that first job. And I just think that's, um, you know, not 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 true. Um, I want to ask you how you became the bestia of modern (laughs) economics. You did the whole big university research, publishing papers in academic journals, math, concepts only economists understand. And now you write novels, a self-help book about Adam Smith, and you're the co-creator of the incredibly popular rap videos, which illustrate the ideas of Keynes and Hayek, the economists, um, which have been viewed by more than like 7 million people or 7 million times on YouTube. So why do you change gears from academia to a more popular style? Uh, you know, I think it's a combination of things uh, that helped me get to this rather strange career of podcaster, movie maker, um, novelist, etc. And I taught in the classroom for 30 years in regular economics departments. So that was a lot of fun. But now uh, being at the Hoover Institution, the only teaching I do is to the public through these projects that you've kindly mentioned. Um, I was, you know, regular economics is kind of dry, kind of boring. And I had the opportunity to live in, you know, we live in a time where there's so many wonderful outlets for creativity, like video, like audio, like writing a novel. And, And I love getting people excited about economics and the economic way of thinking and increasingly about philosophy 
by using other methods than just sort of the standard journal articles. And, you know, also, I, I just, I, I don't think I worked hard enough at those other, at that academic side. Um, and I loved, I found myself enjoying working hard at those other things. So it was kind of an easy choice for me. A little bit risky. Um, you know, there were some times when I thought my career might not go so well, but it's, uh, I've been very, uh, very fortunate and uh, blessed to, to be able to create the things I've been able to create. I would like to talk briefly about the Keynes versus Hayek videos. Mm -hmm. So there are two of them, rounds one and two. And everyone who's listening, you should go check them out. They're really funny. And the details are very specific, which I really liked. And I feel like I could just listen to them over and over again and learn something new every single time. They're a debate that economists have been having for nearly a century about the way to jumpstart the economy. And Keynes versus Hayek, Keynes is pitted against Hayek. And these are just amazing videos. They're great lessons. And it's cool because it's a wrap. So can you talk to us a little bit about those videos? Sure. So I created those with John Popola, who's a filmmaker who contacted me, uh, you know, a lifetime ago, it feels like it was probably 2009, 2008. Um, he wanted to do a project. And uh, I get used to get a lot of people eager to do something like that creative with me. And that was really fun, except I found that a lot of times people never followed up, which is hard to do. It's always fun. I didn't think about it and dream about it, but he followed up and we kept trying different ideas. We were going to have a sitcom with Keynes and Hayek rooming together in New York city, <laughs> Keynes spending a lot of money. Hayek always nervous that they couldn't afford stuff. Um, and then I just, I think at one point I said to John, John, you know, we're not actually doing anything. We're just talking about doing something why don't we write the theme song for the sitcom uh, just for fun? And that sort of got us started. And we decided, I don't know why I do know why I, I was going to say we started writing a rap, which I didn't know much about rap music, still don't. Um, but he and I co-wrote the lyrics and created the beat uh, with some help from others and hired two people to deliver them. And John's a great filmmaker. And I got to help with the filmmaking part. And it was just one of the most fun projects we have ever done because as you said, we tried to make it educational. We tried to make it more than just goofy and funny. It's a little bit goofy and funny, of course, the idea of Keynes and Hayek as rappers. But uh, the other idea was to make the economics really serious. And so there's a, we tried to put a ton of economics in there. The first one, is the Austrian view of the business cycle versus Keynes's view of the business cycle. And the second one is just about uh, macroeconomics more generally and top-down versus bottom-up ways of making the world a better place. And Keynes is the top-down guy and Hayek's the bottom-up guy. Keynes is about steering things relative to Hayek and Hayek's more about letting things emerge and take their own organic path. And so, you know, we had a it's an incredibly fun time, both writing those with John and then filming them. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. And they get used a lot in classrooms, uh, which is gratifying. They've been subtitled in a bunch of languages. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. Incredibly time intensive. So people are always saying, oh, you could do a third one. And John's done a third one. John did one uh, on uh, Mises versus Marx. That's very nice. Uh, so, you know, using music is always a good idea. Uh, I just saw the Hamilton 
film on Disney, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical that Disney is uh, showing. And he's got a rap battle in the middle of that between Jefferson and Hamilton. I like to think that he stole it from us, but that probably isn't the case. Probably not, but yeah. maybe. You never know. You never know. <laughs> I haven't heard from Lynn. I'd love to hear from him. Lynn, if you're listening, give me a give me a give me a shout out. Give me a call. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be listening to this. You never one. know. If he's you never know. Someone <laughs> could pass it on to him. That's true. Maybe they will. Dream big. Who knows? Dream big. <laughs> so let's dive into Adam Smith. Yeah. He was born in 1723, which is almost 300 years ago, like very close to 300 yep. years ago. Um, his influence on economics, trade economics specifically, is remarkable. He's really well known for the wealth of nations, but what he's less well known for, or at least nowadays is his other book the theory of moral sentiments which inspired your book on how adam smith can change your life i want to first ask you whether you were always a fan of adam smith and if not how did your relationship with his work evolve over time adam smith only wrote two books total uh, of course they're pretty influential books so it's it's not like he was an unproductive scholar um, I, economics is funny. It's, it's a little bit, economists like to think of themselves as scientists. I don't, I don't think we are, but, uh, certainly a modern physicist probably doesn't read a lot of Isaac Newton in graduate school, but in economics, you might in the old days, meaning when I went to grad school in the seventies, I remember reading a chapter from the wealth of nations in labor economics on uh, what are called compensating differentials. The fact that more dangerous jobs pay more than less dangerous jobs, everything else held constant. And so I knew about Adam Smith. I knew he was famous as the so-called father of economics. I knew that he had been a big free trader. I knew he was less interventionist than most economists today. That's all I knew about him. Uh, I'd never read The Wealth of Nations in its entirety. Um, and I'd never heard of his other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that you mentioned. And so, you know, sometime I think around, I don't know, 2000 and I forgot, maybe 2009 or so, 2010, Dan Klein, who was my colleague at the time at George Mason when I was on the faculty there, suggested that we do an Econ Talk episode on uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I thought, that's a great idea because I've never read it. And I probably should have read this other book, I do a couple quotes from it that people liked that were well known to people in my circles, but I couldn't have told you anything about what the book was about. I didn't know what the theory of moral sentiments was. So as I said to say in my in my book, How Adam Smith Could Change Your Life, I pick up the theory of moral sentiments thinking I'll just prepare for this interview with Dan Klein and I can't really understand any of it. I'm really in trouble and I'm thinking, why did I agree to this? This is embarrassing. And so I put it down and I picked it up again and I made some progress and then I got that kind of the hang of it. But it sort of starts in mid sentence, mid stream, mid chapter. It's not worded or st styled like in a modern book, of course. Uh, it's actually not that hard to read once you get the idea of, of his style and what what he's trying to deal with there and try to answer. And I loved talking to Dan about it. We did a six part, it was crazy. We ended up doing a six part conversation uh, over more than six hours long of talking about, Dan's got a very eclectic 
take on the book. And I realized that my take on the book wasn't the same as Dan's, which is fine. And we had a nice chat about that over those six hours and then six plus hours. And then I thought, well, it'd be great to write a book about this because I think this is a masterpiece that most people don't know about. I actually wanted to write a book on Adam Smith and um, generally, and my agent didn't think that was very exciting. Uh, <laughs> he's not an economist. And so, but at one point I described his quote, other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments as the greatest self-help book you've never heard of. And he said, that's the book you ought to write. And I thought, I don't really want to write a self-help book. So I like to think of it as a self-help book. I ended up writing it anyway, but I like to think of it as a self-help book for people who don't like self-help books. It's uh, what I'm really trying to do is take some ideas, make them accessible to a modern person and apply them to modern situations. And um, I had a, it was a blast to write, you know, writing that book. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I also like to think, you know, I'm honoring Adam Smith in a way because a lot of people think of him as the greed is good guy. And he didn't believe greed is good. He thought greed was bad. Um, and so, and I write about that a lot in my book because that's a big theme in the theory of moral sentiments. In particular, he doesn't believe you should try to get rich. He thinks that's a mistake. Uh, he thinks if you want to be happy, you should earn the respect of the people around you, which is great advice. So I thought it was, you know, I, I like the idea. I don't know if, I, if I've made any dent in, in this, but I like the idea that people appreciate the real Adam Smith, that he's a slightly richer, maybe has a slightly more nuanced view of the world than most people thought maybe beforehand. So trying to maybe fix his, uh, his reputation a little bit. I think you did a good job with that. I also, I like thinking of it as like a self-help book for people who don't like or think they need self-help type of thing, because I remember I picked it up and I was like, well, I don't know if I need help. I don't like self-help books. I feel like stuff is labeled as self-help books when it's not necessarily like a self-help book. Like I know like Malcolm Gladwell's books are labeled as self-help books, but I don't know if I'd call them self-help books if I was explaining them to someone. Sure. But I don't know. I th For me, it just it was like help in understanding myself and other people. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a great book. But um. Thank you, about Julie. his <laughs> about his misun about how he's misunderstood and how people think that because he's stated that self-interest leads to great things or can lead to great things that he also favored selfish behaviors or thought that that was like okay the theory of moral sentiments or TMS proves the opposite as you mentioned can you explain like further how he's misunderstood and how TMS kind of shows that? Yeah, because I, you know, I think the distinction that you want to keep straight, which is hard to keep straight for some people, is self-interest versus selfish. So we're all self-interested. We all care about ourselves. We often put ourselves first, but that doesn't mean we're selfish just because we're self-interested. And it also doesn't mean we're greedy just because we want enough to take care of our our basic uh, desires, food, shelter, clothing, and so on. So what Smith is very clear about in the theory of moral sentiments is that the pursuit of fame, power, and money, and the people who have, let me back up, the people who have fame, power, and money are, they get a lot of attention. 
in our culture and in Smith's time, which is fun to think about, right? That you wouldn't think that fame, power, and culture, excuse me, fame, power, and money were so important back in 1759 when he first published the first edition of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. But in his world, there were celebrities. In his world, there were powerful people. And in his world, there were rich people. And they were the ones who got you know the attention. When they came into a party, people looked at them. And his uh, the way he puts this you know, beautifully, he says, quote, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. He takes it as a give, end of quote, he takes it as a given that we want to be loved. We want people, and by that he meant people pay attention to us, respect us, honor us, praise us. He takes that as a given, that that, that drives a lot of our pursuits and our desires. But he also says we want to be lovely. We want to earn that praise, earn that respect honestly. And so he says, if you're not careful, you're going to be loved by pursuing money and power and fame. And that often will lead you to be not so lovely. Uh, you'll do some things maybe that you'll regret later that your your urges and grasping nature may uh, betray you and send you into directions that you will regret. And he says, instead, you ought to be pursuing wisdom and virtue. That's how you, the other way to be loved. And I think to be respected, to be honored, to matter. And I think we all, all human beings crave that sense of self-value and that we get from the respect of those around us. And I think that's just a deep insight into what makes us tick. He also notes that admiration from others needs to be legitimate. It can't be based off of something fake. You can't cheat your way through being loved and appearing to be lovely, right? Well, you can. You can fool other people sometimes. He, he discourages you from, from doing it dishonestly. Uh, partly because you'll eventually be found out. But I think more importantly, because you know, if you're self-aware, that you're not genuinely honest or not genuinely lovely, if in fact you are deceiving other people. Um, you know, he actually says in there, one of his stranger statements, I don't think is probably correct, but you know, he says, uh, he finds it strange that, that women wear makeup because it's fake. Right? Why, what's the point? of earning a a reputation or being attractive if you've earned it through paint basically if his in his day uh Mm -hmm. some kind of paint and i you know i don't i think that's a little harsh uh (laughs) adam smith um never married i don't know maybe he his understanding of men and women is a little bit different than ours but uh you could think of that even though i think that's a kind of a bizarre thing to say what he said, I think you can think of that as more as a metaphor. We put on makeup, we put on costumes, we put on armor, we wear various masks uh, to the world. And what Smith's saying is that we'd be better off being more genuine and more authentic and not trying to deceive people about what we aren't, but rather embracing who we are. And that's hard advice to take, but it's really good advice, I believe. And I think it's, you know, the, the idea that that even although we do fool ourselves, he's very aware of that, he's very aware of the challenges of self-deception, uh, when, there are always going to be moments when we're honest and realize who we really are. Uh, you know, I often think about the imposter syndrome, the idea that, oh my gosh, people are going to realize I don't know what I'm supposed to know. I don't know how to do what I'm supposed to know how to do. And there comes a point in your life, if you're lucky, where you learn to say, 
you know, I just, I, I don't know everything. I, I, but that doesn't make me an imposter. It makes me a human being. But I think we're so vulnerable and, and worried about that vulnerability that we put on these masks and, and armor and makeup. Uh, you know, I don't mean necessarily physical makeup, but just the mm-hmm. ways that we shield ourselves from people's view of who we really are. And um, Smith's saying, you know, you're going to be happier if you're more if you're more honest and authentic. And of course, that means you should probably behave a certain way because you want to be perceived as honorable and, and respected and praised and mattering. And so uh, it's not a bad way to, to lead your life. Can you talk to us about the role um, of what Smith calls the impartial spectator plays into this process? Is it is it like a conscience? How yeah, is it different from God? Well, it's like conscience. It's a little like God, although Smith is, you know, very eager to point out that that people who do the right thing, who act honorably or act altruistically, he he says that you know they're not necessarily acting because of the way they were raised and the way that uh, the religious motivations that some people have. He he, he argued that. We do the right thing most of the time because we want people to respect us. We want people to think highly of us. And you have to be careful. That sounds a little bit like you're always, that sounds inauthentic to an, to an extent, right? If you're not careful, you could argue that means, oh, I'll just need to impress other people. It's not what he means. He, he means that you live your life in a way that you are in respect. And that, that's a, I think that's a good idea in general. But the impartial spectator is a fantastic uh, concept. It's the idea that you're self-interested. And you should be aware that you're self-interested so that when you're at a, a point where you're going to make some decision or you have to make a choice, you should be aware that you're a little bit, you've got some challenges in assessing your the ethics and morality of your decision-making. And you might want to remember that how you are viewed by an impartial spectator as opposed to yourself is often going to matter a lot. Now, Smith says we are often we often act as if we were being watched by an impartial spectator. That is, you know, we 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 do try to remember that that we have sometimes our own self interest too much in the forefront of our mind, and so therefore it's good to step back and wonder, well, what if someone here was watching me who wasn't me, who wasn't as loving and accepting of myself? an impartial spectator. I'm very partial to myself. It's our, one of our powerful human sides. And I think that's a brilliant idea. So it, he uses it in, in particular to suggest that people act as if an impartial spectator is watching them. Uh, he sometimes calls that the man in the breast, your internal conscience. And I'm being 1759, he said the man, not the person. But I think there's another way to use the idea, which is to be aware of how other people will judge us uh, and to use that to become a better person, not just to describe or explain how we behave. So, you know, I often think of uh, how we behave when we're alone versus when someone's watching us. If you're, if you're with your, your spouse or your children or your parents, and sometimes you get in a emotional situation and you might raise your voice, you might even yell at your, at your, parents or your children and you wouldn't do that often if people if you knew people could hear you 
And I think that's a to think about the idea that someone is always watching. And of course, that's one of the religious ideas. It's one of the ideas behind the concept of God is that someone always is watching. But Smith reminds us that someone that someone who's always watching is you yourself, and that out of your own self-respect, it's useful to uh, remember that you want to be uh, lovely. You want to be a person who is worthy of respect and honor and praise. And uh, he argues that that's a good way to help uh, to think of how why people do the right thing occasionally. And I'm suggesting that's also a good way to make yourself a better person if you so desire. Well, it reminds me of, well, from when I was younger, it definitely reminds me of Santa because <laughs> Santa's always watching is what people yeah. always tell me. Which <laughs> he is... knows if you've been good or bad. So be good <laughs> for heaven's sake. But it also, when I was reading that part of the book, and as you were talking again, I kept thinking of Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment because it so accurately describes why he was behaving the way he was because he committed a crime no one knew, but he drove himself mad because he first, like, out of anticipation of knowing that he was going to be found out and then also, like... I think really that impartial spectator plays a big role in like that entire book. So that for me, because we just had to read it this year for school. So I've just been like thinking about that, like in connection to like everything else I do now. But sure. that's what I was thinking about. So this next question, it's something that's kind of been nagging me since I read the book, which is that you and Smith both seem to agree that following customs and etiquette and not rocking the boat too much being like nice and generous and stuff that that's important yet both of you are radicals in your own way <laughs> smith is a radical because he changed our views about trade and economics you're a radical and that your classical liberal views are very much in the minority and you defend those views very passionately and like educate people about stuff like that all over. Um, so what's going on with that? <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, I think I think there's a big difference between behaving properly and um, what Smith called propriety, which is the same root I suspect is proper. Behaving properly and then the rest of your life, uh, how you behave in a broader more philosophical sense. Propriety and this, those norms that you talked about that Smith certainly thought you should com you should comply with and that I think in general are good to comply with, those are to allow other people to interact with us in an easy way. So, you know, if you and I were to, we're not doing this face-to-face, -face, we're doing this over the internet, right? But let's say we met face-to-face -face for this interview and I decided, you know, I'm just kind of tired. I'm not going to I'm not going to take a shower today. I'm going to wear a torn shirt um, and I'm not going to trim my beard. And what's the difference? I could be, I can do whatever I want. And of course I can, but you have a certain expectation or better yet, the world has a certain set of expectations about how you behave in that setting. Right. And so when I don't comply with those, and that's a small, really tiny example, right? That tiny example is just, you had you would have a certain expectation of how I would appear, and I don't meet that expectation if in that version of the story. 
Then the next level would be, I talk a lot, I'm rude, I interrupt you all the time, I make bad jokes that you don't think are funny or worse, that are tasteless or cruel. Well, that's not appropriate. <laughs> and, and, and that doesn't have really anything to do with the content of our conversation. It's just the sort of guidelines and guide rails, right? But within those guidelines, there's once I comply with the with the norms that are expected of me, so that I can I put you at ease. So I dress appropriately. It doesn't mean I have to wear a suit, right? Mm -hmm. But I but I've I've trimmed my beard and my clothes are nice and clean and I don't smell. I've met the standards and then I'm I'm polite. I'm not rude. I'm not obnoxious. Well, now what comes out of my mouth, once I've set, stayed within that basic framework, I can I have a lot of freedom still, but I'm going to comply with those expectations so that you, as the conversational partner, can have a good experience also. It's not all about me. That's one of Smith's deepest insights. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about our interactions with the people around us, our family, our friends, and strangers. So the you know the the metaphor I like to use that I think I stole from Vernon Smith is the idea of a dance floor. You know, go out on the dance floor, and let's take Victorian England. That dance floor is different than a modern dance floor. There are certain mm -hmm. expectations of how you behave, but in most dance floors, whether they were in 1759, 1859, 1959, or 2020 not appropriate to step on other people's toes it's not appropriate to shove people around and bang into them and unless that's you know different kind of club <laughs> but if, mm -hmm. if you're if you're doing a, a most dancing you're, you're not smashing into other people and knocking them over and so those are the basic rules it's like driving on the right side of the road driving on the right side of the road in the united states or on the left side of the road in england isn't like an infringement on your freedom it's a social norm actually the law, but in general, it wouldn't need it to be the law. It's an expectation that allows people to then drive where they want to go without constantly banging into other people. And similarly, when I go out on a dance floor, proper behavior means I can't just jump around and do all this stuff showing off that I might want to do. I want to take account of the other, if I have a partner I'm dancing with, I, I, want, I want her to look good for starters. I don't just want to show off me and make her look lousy. And it at a minimum, I don't want to bang into other folks. So I think those guide rail, excuse me, guardrails, they called them guide rails a minute ago. Those guardrails are what allow us to drive effortlessly on the highway of life. It allows us to, you and I, to have a great conversation uh, as long as I comply with sort of those basic things. But it doesn't rule out, once I've complied with those, I can be as radical as, as I want, as long as I'm not rude to you, as long as I don't violate your expectations of what would be a proper behavior. So, you know, in certain societies, those rules are more onerous than in others, right? Victorian England had, a, you know, a better example actually would be, uh, you know, there are many movies where the, the poor person has to go into rich society and doesn't know all the rules, what fork to use and what spoon to use and how to hold the teacup and all that stuff. And we look at that as moderns and go, boy, that stuff's so silly. But we have our own rules. Those are just the rules of, of you know, fancy society and various times in the past. But we have our own rules about you know, how you dress and how you behave and how you stand and how what you, you know, the tone of your voice and how loud you are and how close you get to the person next to you. Right now we're in the middle of the pandemic. 
<laughs> I don't like people getting really close to me. You know, I, I, I think social distancing right now is probably a good idea. So, you know, most people observe those rules. They don't say, ah, I do whatever I want. In fact, it's a strange thing. I think a lot of people are rebelling against this idea of wearing masks because they think somehow it's an infringement on their freedom. But that's like saying it's an infringement on your freedom that you can't bang into other people when you're on the dance floor. There's certain modest, minimal expectations of how to behave in various situations. It's not a question of the necessarily of the government enforcing it at the point of a gun. It's about what's civilized. And Smith, to bring us back to Smith, Smith was really interested in understanding where civilization came from. And what's by civilization, I don't mean the pyramids uh, or, you know, some um, Greek um, philosophy. By civilization, I mean just the fact we get along, that you can have a civil conversation, a pleasant conversation with a stranger you've never met before or an encounter in a store with someone who's selling something and you're the buyer. So all of that has an immense amount of stuff around it that you don't think about because you just comply with those rules very and guardrails very naturally. But that's really what Smith's talking about. And once you've done that kind of complying, then you can you have your freedom of expression of, of what your content is. And again, you can't necessarily use language that be inappropriate in certain settings. Although if you you know if you look at America and what's on uh, on television or whatever you want to call television these days, video you know, <laughs> screens. Uh, you know, language that was unacceptable 25 years ago is commonplace now in terms of so-called four-letter words and other things that that uh, used to be totally off the, you know, unacceptable. And now it's more common. So things these evolve, they change, they're not fixed. How people dress is much more casual than it used to be. But once you've done that, once you've complied with what sort of the basic rules are, there's room to, for self-expression. And uh, in fact, I think the those norms and guardrails are what allow the self-expression to work really well. Cause it means you and I can have that conversation and you're not thinking, boy, why didn't he shower? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think about just having respect for other people, having respect for like cultures, for like customs, for, I don't know, just everyone in general, just for other people. And especially with the mask thing, it's out of respect for other people because wearing a mask or something like that, you're, you're protecting other people from yourself more than you're protecting yourself from other people. But if everyone's wearing a mask, then you're all protecting each other. But that's that. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And it's no fun. Not fun to wear a mask. It's also no fun, by the way. Uh, there are a lot of rules in, in social settings that aren't so fun, right? I'd rather, there's a lot of times I'd rather wear more comfortable clothes than the fancier clothes that I have to put on for certain settings. And we do that because we want, we don't want the people interacting with us to be constantly jarred and to be like, wait, but why? Because <laughs> once you comply with those things, then it works smoothly and it allows us to interact in ways that are more productive and productive. I don't mean like you can make more widgets. I mean, more meaningful, more satisfying, more exhilarating. Those are all the things that matter, not what clothes you're wearing. And I think people have a tendency to say, oh, it doesn't matter what clothes I wear. And it, it does matter. And it does matter how you comport yourself and how you talk. But the content is what really counts. And more than the content, the quality of your interaction with another human being is what's important. And when I beat your expectations, to take a trivial example again, I drive on the right side of the road, and you know that, and you expect that, and so you drive on the right side of the road, that allows us both to get somewhere 
that we want to go. And it's not a, uh, only an idiot says, oh, I can drive on either side. I'm, it's a free country. Of course, it's a, it's, you are free to do that. You're free to make it dangerous for other people. And that's a bad thing to do. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if Smith were resurrected today, what do you think you'd find most lovely about people today? And what would he find most troubling about us? Well, I'm going to do the second part first. I'm not sure what he'd find that that's lovely. I think he, um, I think he'd be awed by the human creativity of the modern world. It's he was just at the cusp of the beginnings of the industrial revolution, so you know he was interested in how human experience was changing at that time, even though it was just literally a glimmer at that point. Uh, I think he would have found this world we live in kind of extraordinary. Uh, so that's the part I think he'd like. The part he wouldn't like, I said I'd answer this first, but I'm going, I guess I'm answering it second. The part he wouldn't, I don't know if he'd dislike it, but I think he'd be somewhat taken aback by uh, social media because he talks about our urge to overreact to that natural tendency we have to be loved. And I think social media, the pursuit of likes and Twitter followers and I don't do Instagram. I don't know what the equivalent is there, but we are always looking for that dopamine thrill of, Oh, I got another follower or I'm up over this certain number. And I think that would have um, alarmed him to some extent, the, the ability that social media gives us to pursue that kind of um, celebrity status that, you know, I want to, I want to impress the people around us. He understood very deeply that part of us. He also understood very deeply our, our desire for a, uh, our love of, of powerful people, which I mentioned earlier, it's a very natural human response to, to actually like powerful people. And I think, you know, we see this around the world. We see it throughout history, uh, that, that not every dictator is unpopular. A lot of people like dictators. They like the idea that someone's in charge, that's taking care of them. Even, understand the sentence they might exploit them but they still have some respect for how powerful and and successful they are and smith really writes eloquently about that i talk a little bit about that in the book um and in his day you know he was spared the modern uh, horrors of the totalitarian states of the 20th century but i don't think they would have surprised him the the lure and seductive appeal of the it's typically a man, a, you know, a strong man, a person who's going to take charge and fix things. And I think that's a very dangerous impulse of human beings. And Smith, I think, thought so too. And I think he would be very unhappy about that, uneasy with it at least. Before we close, I want to switch gears and talk about podcasting a little bit. Sure. Um, you're the founder and host of what I think, at least, is the world's best-known economics podcast called Econ Talk. Um, what lessons of being a podcast host have you learned over the years? So it's been an amazing intellectual journey for me. Um, we, we talked earlier about the value of learning and just growing in, intellectually and thinking and philosophy. And I originally started interviewing economists and now they're a much smaller portion of my guest list. I still interview economists, but I tend to interview uh, philosophers and historians and cultural critics and others. And uh, it's kept me incredibly alive. Um, I love the stimulus I've received from my guests, and I hope 
you as a podcast host get to enjoy that as well. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk to. I, I think of it as being able to talk to people smarter than I am and ask them dumb questions and push them and <laughs> try to get them to explain what they what they believe and defend it. And it's um, it's an incredible gift and to be able to you know, talk to people every Monday morning in a sense, right? Because I don't get to hear what they say except through comments and email, but uh, the chance to talk to someone else and let other people listen in, which is what a podcast is. You know, when you have when you have a guest and it's not just a monologue, it's just incredibly, um, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, it's great that other people listen. But if I if I could if even if if no one was listening, the guest would appear on the program, I guess. But um, it's just a wonderful chance to learn from other people, and it's broadened my world in an unimaginable way. It's just been a fantastic experience. Yeah, I've, I'm like starting to feel that more and more. I'm like, even if people didn't listen, I like it so much. I just keep doing it. <laughs> We're listening. <laughs> okay, so finally, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Uh, probably a few things. Um, you know, most people don't like to admit they changed their views because um, I think we have we don't like to admit that we were wrong. Uh, it's particularly true of politicians. They very, very rarely say, boy, I messed that up. Um, they always have an excuse. And that's a human thing. I get it. But if I did, you know, there are a few things I've learned. I think um, probably the most important is the power of economics. I think when I was younger, I thought economics was like science. It was just, you know, the, the predictions of my way of looking at economics were always right and I could always justify them. And as I've gotten older and particularly through EconTalk, I've realized that the world's probably a little more complicated than that. And that used to really bother me and I just wouldn't want to think about it. But eventually I got to a point where I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, so and the most important thing I probably learned from EconTalk I alluded to earlier is to be able to say, I don't know. It's fantastic. It's uh, it opens up it's like a, a you know a huge weight off your chest that you don't have to pretend you know everything and you don't have to defend every every implication of some economic philosophy or model or whatever and the world's imperfect every most philosophies are imperfect and that's okay too so i'd say that's probably the biggest thing is that when i was younger i thought economics was like you know the predictions were always true of my models my way of looking at the world my lens and now i think well they have sent me in the right direction most of the time they're right but they're not always right and i'm always eager to learn and you know right now we're in the middle of the pandemic there's a lot of we're at the beginning of the pandemic there were a lot of shortages and in my view of the world shortages come from price controls because without price controls you don't get shortages the price goes up people who don't like the good so much or don't need the good so much don't buy it the people who are making the good has with the higher price of it incentive to produce more of it so the gap between what people want and what uh, people produce gets closed and there aren't any shortages that was my view of the world and it's still pretty much my view of the world but i've been surprised at how many things are hard to get right now it's hard to get crossword puzzles evidently i know it's hard to get bird feeders it's for a while it's hard to get flour all the things that people like to do when they're stuck at home watch <laughs> birds do cross jigsaw i said crossword i think jigsaw puzzles bake bread all those things were, were short supply masks were in short supply for a while uh now that went away very quickly the non-n95 masks just the plain kind of mask that 
average people wear. There's like a zillion of them. And of course they come in all kinds of shapes and colors and it's fantastic. And that's capitalism at its best. But I'm surprised at how some of the things didn't bounce back more quickly. And I think that's my worldview tells me to look at prices. Often there's a law that says, oh, if you charge too much higher than you charged before, we're going to take you to court. That's those are you know anti gouge price gouging laws, and those mm-hmm. did inhibit I think some of the uh, production expansion that normally would have happened. But I start now I've started to think well, maybe there's some cultural norms that are not legal. But you know why didn't why did the makers of toilet paper and the makers of hand sanitizer raise the prices early on and get rid of the shortages? Meaning it's not just oh we'll exploit people, but why weren't there an incentive? for new producers to come online and charge more. And for people who didn't need so much hand sanitizer, who were were stockpiling it, to stop stockpiling it and let other people get at it. That's what happens when prices go up. Discourages hoarding. It's great. It's fantastic. But it didn't happen so much as I would have predicted. So either there were some laws against prices rising, legislation that, that, that kept that from happening. But maybe there's cultural norms that people don't like to raise prices. I'll give you another example. Somebody said the other day they wanted to buy a freezer because they realized that, hey, if there's another pandemic and you're stuck at home and you don't want to go out shopping so much, you'd like to store some free stuff. Well, it's hard to find a freezer. People say, I don't know if it's really true, but people say it's hard to find a freezer if you go to Home Depot or you go to Best Buy or wherever. A lot of the freezers are, quote, out of stock. Well, is that because it's just hard to make them quickly or is that, you know, why would they ramp up more production, hire more people? get more investment. They have a chance to make a lot of money right now, but maybe they don't want to raise their price. And so there's a restriction on it, a cultural restriction on how much money they can make. And that discourages them from doing those things they need to create more of the stuff. And if that's true, then I need to rethink some of what I would say is the way the world works in terms of supply and demand. So that's those are the things I'm thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I know at the beginning of this pandemic, I was kind of faced with a similar thing. I was like, man, like there are not that many laws like prohibiting any sort of like production of a lot of things. Like no one is stopping the production of flour, but it just wasn't happening. And I didn't think about the cultural aspect of that, but I thought more about the, um, the way that it lagged, like people just didn't realize, like producers didn't think immediately, oh, I'm going to make flour. So I don't know. That's how I was thinking well, about it. I, I think I don't want to push my skepticism too far. I want to make mm-hmm. sure you understand that, you know, when I, I don't think necessarily my view of the world is wrong, my old view, because I think there are a lot of laws against raising prices and a lot of yeah. attorney generals and, and the the Department of Justice explicitly said that if you raise your price for protective equipment like masks and gowns and ventilators and other things, we'll sue you. So they did kind of, you know, they took the profit out of it, which took away the incentive to ramp up quickly because ramping up quickly costs money. And if you can't earn it back in the form of a higher price, you're not going to ramp up. So there yeah. is, there were restrictions, but there are other things that just, I can't imagine. I, I just, I think there were some unease on the part of producers to raise their prices, even if it was legal. So like I think that's part of it. What? Like a freezer. Like a I freezer. Think... That's not re- I don't think you'd get taken to court for price gouging, but I might be wrong about that. So, you know, maybe my old view is, is really the root of what's caused some of these shortages. But I think that's what economists ought to be thinking about, by the way, and learning about and studying. And we don't do much of that. So I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. That. 
Well, thank you so much, Russ. Um, I have to tell you that every time I mentioned that I was interviewing you to my parents' friends, that um, they they just reacted like I was about to interview a rock star. So I'm incredibly honored that you're here to talk to me today. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, Adam Smith would say, uh, you don't want to aspire to be a rock star. It's not good for your <laughs> your uh, your soul. He wouldn't put it that way, but that's the way I like to think about it. It's, <laughs> if you're not careful, you uh, you know you're going to end up in uh, something like A Star Is Born, and that's a movie you don't want to star in. So, no. But but I take the, but I appreciate the compliment. You can uh, you can tell your parents' friends that uh, it was great to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Hi everyone, Juliet here. First of all, I want to thank everyone who has been listening to the podcast for these past six months. It's been amazing. I mean, so many people have talked to me or other people and have started having conversations about the stuff that I've been talking about in my podcast and just sharing it with others. I never would have thought that I could have come this far. Secondly, I wanted to take this quick opportunity to tell you that the podcast is going to be going through some changes in the coming weeks. Not only does the podcast have a new sponsor, the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University, but I've settled on a new name, and from here on out, this podcast will be named The Great Antidote. In the words of Adam Smith, quote, science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition, end quote. This has always been my goal, to fight ignorance, and I can't think of a more fitting name. This is a very exciting time, and I'm really happy that I get to share it with you all. And another thing, we're moving this podcast to another platform, so it will no longer be on Libsyn, and instead will be on Buzzsprout, so the URL will be different, but it'll still be on Spotify, and soon it'll be on Apple Music and other platforms, so that's helpful. Anyways, that's it. Thank you again so much for all your support. I'll see you later.